Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a privilege to have Dr. Doug Groteis on the program today. He has released three books this year, and one of them is about 800 pages. It's actually a revision, or maybe we should say an addition, to a seminal 2011 book called Christian Apologetics. Doug, you've written 16 books, three this year. How did this happen? I have a lot of time on my hands. Yeah, well, you don't. A lot of time when I can sit in the basement and bang away at my keyboard, and my wife and my dog are very supportive of that. Oh, well, so. that's, that's very good. That's yeah. very good. You've been at Denver Seminary for 30 years. You've yeah. written 16 books. Three of them have come out this year, uh, Christian Apologetics. The other one's Fire in the Streets. And the one that you just picked up 10 minutes ago for yeah. the first time, we're holding right here at... We're in Denver, North Carolina. Denver, North Carolina. <laughs> there is a Denver, North Carolina, by the way. There is. Since oh, really? I'm from North Carolina, okay. but Denver, Colorado at the Evangelical Theological Society. This is brand new, The Knowledge of God in the World and the Word, an introduction to Christian apologetics. Let's start with the uh, the big one, the 800-pager that I've actually been reading lately <laughs> mm-hmm. in little bits because it's so voluminous, but it's so good. You added... Eight chapters? Eight new chapters, what, right. Why did, what did you add from, from 10 years ago? Well, it's hard to remember all of them, yeah. actually, without a cheat sheet. In fact, in the introduction to the second edition, I said I added seven new chapters. I couldn't even keep track of them. <laughs> so I taught the book for many years at Denver Seminary yeah. to my apologetic students. And I kept thinking, not so much I need to change things, but I need to add material. Right. So the n- most significant addition, I think, would be two chapters on the atonement. Because I realized that in my Christology chapter, or chapters, I talked a lot about the person of Christ, Mm -hmm. but not as much about the work of Christ, Mm -hmm. the atonement. Mm -hmm. Of course, they go together. Sure. But I realized that I need to explain the atonement. And then as I looked at it, I realized a lot of people are challenging propitiation, the doctrine that Christ vicariously took our punishment. There's some people that say this is not worthy of God. If God is love, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't punish his own son. Mm -hmm. And you hear nonsense about divine child abuse and that kind of thing. So I went back to the best heretic on this who is Socinus. And I read Socinus, and that guy was smart. It took me a while to figure out how to address him. So I went back and looked at the biblical material, looked at work by William Lane Craig and John Stott and Mm -hmm. Francis Turretin and the Hodges and all these people. And I looked at the objections to propitiation and I tried to give a very strong defense of it. But propitiation is just one aspect of the atonement. There's also ransom, there's union with Christ, there's the defeat of Satan, Christus Victor. So Mm -hmm. there are about five key elements of the atonement. But I realized in my research that evangelicals were critiquing propitiation. And of course, unbelievers have critiqued it, like going back to Kant or Mm -hmm. Christopher Hitchens or other people. So I thought, all right, I need to not only explain propitiation better, I need to defend it. By what moral standard are they critiquing propitiation? Where are they getting this moral standard from, Doug? Good question. Mm -hmm. They're not getting it from God. Mm -hmm. So God is in a position to have Christ represent us as the God-man, and God is equally 
loving and just. Mm. Some people think that justice is like a secondary, not that important mm. attribute. So it's all love. God could have just winked and forgiven everybody. Mm. And so I say, no, given the nature of God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, we need atonement. The love is shown by sending his son and the son taking um, the obligation. And the justice is shown in the punishment. So it's a perfect confluence of love and justice in the cross. And the cross did so many beautiful things for us. It's just mind-boggling when you start to study it. You really worship and praise God. But I find propitiation right at the center of the atonement. And I went back and looked at some of the work of, of Leon Morris and uh, biblical scholars that looked at the words and analyzed that. So I came out much stronger on that doctrine. And so we've got two chapters on that. The atonement explaining it and the mm -hmm. atonement defending it. That's 50 pages. Mm -hmm. So those are two chapters. I have a chapter on the argument from beauty. That is a version of the design argument. And it's a compelling argument, but it's not used as often by analytic philosophers. The argument basically is that there are features of the world that are not designed by humans that are objectively beautiful. And when we see things designed by humans that are beautiful, we say, that's beautiful. And we know there's a designer. So if we see a phenomenal sunset mm -hmm. or we look at the stars in the sky or so many things, even the patterns of fish at the deepest parts of the ocean, you are stunned by the spectacular beauty. Now the naturalist has to say, it's just there. It's all in here. Actually, the beauty is not out there in the world. It's just a subjective response. Mm. And I think the best explanation for objective beauty in the world is that there is a divine artist. So I've added that argument. So that's three. We're three out of eight. So. Let me ask you more about beauty because that's yeah. such an intriguing argument, yeah. Doug. The God is an immaterial being. So technically, he, he's not something we see. So how is God beautiful in that sense then? Well, the argument goes from things that we can see and hear and discern in mm -hmm. the physical world, things for our purposes that are not made by humans. Mm -hmm. And we look at that and we say, what is the best explanation? Is it that we can reduce this to time, space, chance, and energy without a designer, without mm -hmm. an author mm -hmm. and an artist, or is the best explanation an artist? So the artist, of course, would be an immaterial being, would be God who's outside the universe. But God is the ultimate uh, exemplar, if you want to put it that way, of all that is good, the good, the true, and the beautiful, that great triad mm -hmm. of transcendentals. So I think... A lot of uh, contemporary evangelical apologetics has emphasized the good and the true, but not mm -hmm. so much the beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I've been very influenced on that, the idea of objective beauty by Roger Scruton, uh, who is uh, a great philosopher who's passed away a few years ago, identified as an Anglican. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. So there's a short chapter on the argument from beauty. It's not as developed as my fine-tuning argument or the cosmological argument but I think the argument from beauty can capture people yes. at an intuitive level. And I give an example in the book of a fellow I talked with in graduate school. This is back about 90, 91. And we were looking at this uh, remarkable sunset in Eugene, Oregon. And he looked at it. He said, when I see that, when I see nature so beautiful, I'm so grateful. And I said, who are you grateful to? Mm -hmm. And he just stopped. <laughs> and I, I said, I'm grateful to God, who's the great artist, or some, mm -hmm. some good line like mm -hmm. that. I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. what it was. 
But it wasn't just a one-liner. That developed some very significant spiritual conversations with this guy. So would we say then that although God is an immaterial being, his works express his beauty, Mm -hmm. that we see the effects of God in creation. He's, we're reasoning from effect back to cause. Right. He might not, he doesn't physically have a sunset in him because Mm -hmm. he's, he's immaterial, but he produces a sunset or produces a human being that's beautiful. So he is the source of all Mm -hmm. that is good and true and beautiful. And also scripture talks a lot about the beauty of holiness and the beauty of uh, scripture. I Mm -hmm. just scraped the surface on Mm -hmm. this, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a pretty cogent apologetic argument. The, the argument from the effects back to the cause, the beauty and the effects and the artist Mm. who is the cause. Mm. So you got two on beauty, two on the atonement, just one on beauty, two on the atonement. And I have an article or I have a chapter also on original monotheism, which is an argument that Wynne Corduin has developed marvelously in the last 20 years. And that's the argument that from the anthropological evidence we can infer that the original religion was monotheism, which Mm -hmm. goes in the face of the evolutionary explanations that you started out with some primitive animism, maybe polytheism, and eventually you refine it and get it more abstract and reach monotheism. But I argue that the case for that evolutionary naturalistic explanation of monotheism is extremely weak. Mm. So what I'm doing in that chapter, I'm trying to defeat a defeater. I'm actually not making the full case from the historical uh, and archaeological and linguistic evidence for original monotheism, but I'm saying that the kind of evolutionary account you might get from Freud or Durkheim is very inadequate. Mm. And in some ways it's immaterial because we have such good arguments from natural theology anyway. Right. Design arguments, cosmological arguments, mm-hmm. moral arguments. Mm-hmm. You could even just bracket that whole natural that whole uh, original monotheism argument and still come out with a very strong theistic view. Now, this is not something we talk about a lot. I don't know if we've ever talked about the ontological argument on this show, but it, it's it's a controversial argument. And mm-hmm. your brand new book, yeah. which has come out 10 minutes ago, ladies and gentlemen, right. it's probably going to, by the time you hear this, it might already be out uh, on Amazon or wherever you get you books. You can at least pre-order it yeah. from Amazon. It's called The Knowledge of God in the World. Uh, and the word. So you're getting the knowledge of God from natural theology, from the world, and you're getting God from the word itself. Mm-hmm. Ontological argument. Yeah. What's your view on that? And how would you explain yeah. it to a lay person? Well, that's not easy. Uh-huh. Um, it is a very sophisticated, abstract argument. There are various forms of it. The first form was given to us by St. Anselm mm-hmm. in the 11th century. And there are more modern forms by people like Charles Hartshorn and Alvin Plantinga and so on. Uh, this book is co-written with Ike Shepherdson, and Ike was the principal author of the chapter on the ontological argument. And what he's done is really masterful because it is a famously tough, rigorous argument, but he's kept it at a very clear analytical level, but made it more approachable to people. The basic idea is that the concept of a perfect being occupies a unique place in the conceptual world. It's a being who is perfect in every respect. Mm. So you argue from the concept of God, along with certain logical principles, to say that this kind of a being must exist. And it sounds odd on the face of it. Mm. You think, well, I've got an idea of a unicorn. That doesn't mean a unicorn exists. But unicorns are not in the same conceptual category as God. We're talking about an absolutely unlimited 
perfect being. And if that being could exist in one possible world, I'm giving you planning as version, mm -hmm. then that being must exist in all possible mm -hmm. worlds because uh, in all worlds, in all possible worlds, because that being would exist with the virtue of necessity, a necessary existence. So that's about the best I can do on, <laughs> on a kind of simpler level. But it's an argument that's tougher to get into. But once you get into it, I think that there are several versions that are successful. Mm. And if they are successful, it means that a perfect being must exist. Mm. And then from there, we say, well, what else might we know about this perfect being? Then we go to history and scripture and we say, well, look, this perfect being has come in the person of Christ. And then we do the work of historiography and argue for the claims of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. So it all fits together very nicely. And also, let's say you don't think the... Uh, ontological argument works, we can just bracket it and appeal to good design arguments, cosmological arguments, arguments for the resurrection, mm -hmm. and still have a very adequate apologetic. Yes, this is not necessary. No, it isn't. And since it is controversial in many respects, probably more so than the other arguments, it's not one that apologists have used very often, at least in the, and as you say, it's hard to explain, mm -hmm. sometimes even hard to understand. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it, it, it does have some merit. You know, it's interesting you bring it up because I was listening not long ago to a young man. You've probably heard of him. His name is Alex O'Connor. He's the cosmic skeptic, young man from uh, the UK. And I heard him recently saying that uh, he's taken another look at the ontological argument and uh, he thinks there's a lot more to it than he originally hmm. thought. And he's an atheist, right? He's oh. he's looking at it, going, "Wow, this is more." I than should I contact thought. him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, because uh, he has quite a following on YouTube. Uh, but apparently, he's been uh, he has a roommate who's a Christian, mm. and uh, apparently, that's causing him to at least look at Christianity oh. with a little bit more of an open mind. Good. Well, may yeah. God make him aware to his existence. I should try mm -hmm. to contact him sure. after the show. Yeah, here. Maybe yeah. you can tell me more about him. Yeah. I also have a chapter in my uh, second edition of mm -hmm. Christian apologetics on the ontological mm -hmm. argument mm -hmm. that I wrote by myself. Mm -hmm. Ike is the principal author in our newer book. Mm -hmm. And the newer book is more aimed as an undergrad textbook. It's a little bit more approachable than my big 839 page tome, which if I had with me, I could demonstrate. It's also usable as a, uh, Dumbbell. <laughs> That's right. And one of my students, we had a policeman come into one of my classes to tell us what to do if an active shooter mm -hmm. comes. Sad. Hold the book up, man. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> First you run, then you hide, and then you fight. And one of my students says, we can fight with Dr. Grothuis's apologetics book, <laughs> yeah. you know, mentally and physically. <laughs> Actually, I know it seems daunting, but it's well written. Duh. It's not Thank hard you. to read. I mean, it's not like you're going to go, I don't understand this. No, I, yeah, yeah. I try very hard yeah. to welcome people into the discipline and make it interesting yeah. and, and gripping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what other new chapter do you have in it? We've been through a few of them already that you can remember. Yeah. Well, people ought to get the new the, edition. Um, the resurrection chapter has become two chapters. Okay. So I have a chapter, which is an introduction to the idea of miracle. Mm -hmm. And I developed that more. Mm -hmm. Of course I critique David Hume, but I also, mm -hmm add some material from recent reports of miracles, things from Lee Strobel's book, mm. Case for Miracles, mm. and going back to Craig Keener's massive yes. two-volume set about yeah. miracles. So I give a prolegomena by saying this is what a miracle is. It's not a violation of nature. Mm -hmm. It's a supernatural addition to the causal structure. Mm -hmm. 
if theism is true, then miracles are at least possible. Right. And then we look to history to see if they're actual. Right. And, you know, I got that chop from Norm Geisler sure. 40 years ago. Yeah, so did I. And I've been yeah. using it ever since. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, it's how classical apologetics right. works. You right. develop theism, and then on top of theism, miracles become possible. Mm -hmm. You do the investigation and, mm -hmm. and so on. So there are now two chapters on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. I still use the minimal facts approach mm -hmm. for arguing for the resurrection, as does... Gary Habermas and William Lane Craig, and mm -hmm. I think N.T. Wright does as well. Mm -hmm. So I can't even remember all the other new chapters. Frank, why do you put me on the spot? I don't, I don't have the book in <laughs> front of me. You couldn't carry it with you anyway. <laughs> That's right. There's a weight limit on we these planes. Well, actually, you live here, don't you? I live here, but yeah. even that, it won't fit in my briefcase. <laughs> so buy the book and find out how uh -huh. many new chapters uh -huh. it has. Oh, I know. Another new chapter, and I think this is significant, is I have a chapter called Lament as a, as a Christian apologetic. Yeah, tell people about that. You went yeah. through a very difficult experience with your wife who mm -hmm. who passed away in 2017, is that right? 18, 2016. 18. Oh, 2018. Okay, because yeah. the book came out in 2017. It did. Right? Yeah, it okay. came out before she went to be with the Lord. Explain yeah. that, what, yeah. what that's about. Well, I wrote a book called Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament, about the experience that Rebecca and I were going through. She had a rare form of dementia, and she was a writer, editor, utterly brilliant person. I think probably the second most brilliant person I ever knew. The first was my advisor, Keith Yandel, mm -hmm. at uh, University of Wisconsin. He was just a little bit quicker, mm -hmm. <laughs> but utterly brilliant. She was a singer, a poet, a beautiful woman. And she contracted primary progressive aphasia. So she began to lose her mind, lost her ability mm -hmm. to speak. And eventually that took her life. So... I had been studying lament in scripture and philosophically for years. And I was asked by Mark Galley, who was the editor of Christianity Today at the time, to write an article about my experience. And I said, well, I'd rather not, but thank you for asking. We'll see. And this was on the campus of Denver Seminary where I work. And I went back to my office and within half an hour, I'd basically written an article. And I submitted it. And that article received more response from readers than anything I had written in 35 years mm -hmm. or 40 years. What's so, the name of the article? Though? Yeah, the article, I forgot. Is it close to the title of the book? No, it has a different kind of title. But um, it's in Christianity Today? It's in Christianity Today, 2015. It has kind of a poetic title, and I don't so remember it's, it's it. So it's 2015. This is even three years yeah, before she died. Huh? It is. Right. And then after that, three publishers asked me to write books on it. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to write a book. And I decided I needed to. It was like the book wanted to be written. Mm. And I was the person to write the book. And really, as I started to write it, it was already written in my mind because I'm a writer and everything I experience, I think of in terms of words, sentences, paragraphs, chapters. So it's a lament. It's in the same category as A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis or Nicholas Wolterstorff's book, Lament for a Son, mm. something like that. So the chapter in, in Christian apologetics says that we have the problem of evil to deal with as Christians. Yes. All theists do. Actually, all worldviews Everybody does. have to yeah, deal with sure. the explanation of evil. But Christianity gives us the intellectual and existential resources to live wisely through suffering by lament. And lament has to do with giving your whole person to God in grief, in sorrow, in anger, in confusion— there are about 60 Psalms of Lament. We have the Book of Lamentations. It's a way of being in the world where you take loss 
and evil seriously and confusion seriously, but you don't give up, but you don't pretend that everything's okay by just quoting uh, Romans 8, 28 right. over and over again. Right. So I think that by suffering well with hope, and Paul says this hope does not disappoint us in Romans, we give a witness to the world. So that's a new chapter. It's a shorter chapter, but it's kind of the opposite side of, okay, we can deal with the problem of evil in various ways, philosophically and theologically, but then you have what's called the existential or pastoral problem of evil. And I say there, given the wisdom of God in the Bible, given the example of Jesus who died for us and suffered for us, that means that suffering can have meaning, especially when it's connected to the resurrection. Now, when you were going through that, Doug, if you look back on it, was there a point where you thought to yourself, maybe I've been believing a lie? No. Never, never, that never came no, across your mind. How about did. anger? Yep. <laughs> okay. And I talk about that in the book. I was extremely angry with God, especially when uh, Becky was first in uh, the hospital. We didn't know what was wrong with her. She wouldn't talk. And so we had to take her to ER and then they put her in adult behavioral health. I didn't know how that worked. It was confusing. I thought they were mistreating her. I talk about that in the book. And I was very angry for a long time. But at the end of the day, I mean, literally, sometimes at the end of the day, I'd say, well, what else can I do except seek God? I'm angry with God. I don't even like God right now, but he is God. And who, who else can I follow? Mm. So it's like what Peter said uh, when Jesus asked him, will you also lead me in John 6? Who else are we going to go to? Yeah, to yeah. whom else yeah. can we go? There's nobody to go to. So... Becky and I knew too much to go back. We had worked too hard on our mm. worldview all those years to really question the existence or goodness of God. But we really didn't like the way he was mm. working out our lives. And I think with lament in scripture, Psalm 22, Psalm 88, Psalm 90, Psalm 39, biblical writers feel this way. Yes. So how long, O oh Lord, where are you? This makes no sense. Psalm 88 is by Heman the Ezraite who was chronically ill. And the way that verse, that psalm ends is darkness is my closest friend. There's mm -hmm. no resolution to thanksgiving or gratitude. And I like that. You know, what I'm, I think I'll see him in the Ezra height in heaven. And I'll say, thank you for writing that psalm. Mm -hmm. Because in this world, things don't resolve the way we want them to. Mm -hmm. The ultimate resolution is in the eschaton. Mm -hmm. So two psalms don't resolve into praise or thanksgiving. Psalm 39 which is a Psalm of David and Psalm 88, which is him and the Ezraite. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. The Bible tells the truth. Yeah. It, it does that with regard to lament, as you mentioned, it also tells the truth about all the embarrassing um, incidents of the Hebrews and even the new Testament writers, mm -hmm. the apostles. This is not a sanitized text. It's a text no. that deals with world, the world at the granular level. Yeah. It's real. Right. It's not a, it's not a fairy tale. Well, and I don't know how long you've been a Christian, Frank. I became a Christian in 1976 when I was 19. And I have been reading and thinking and mulling over and teaching and preaching and write about, writing about and wrestling with the Bible all these years. Hmm. And I continue to learn and grow. When I develop a new sermon for a church, I always learn something new about the passages. Hmm. Or I've read something literally hundreds of times. Hmm. And I see a new insight that is profound. To me. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. The, 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 the Maybe depth, it's divinely the inspired. The, scripture, yeah. <laughs> the depth of the scripture just never yeah. ceases to amaze right. 
me also the tapestry of it how mm -hmm. it's linked together in ways you wouldn't right. recognize normally right. on the surface mm -hmm. someone said um there are many things we don't understand someone said it would be strange if an infinite god wasn't strange to us exactly right? there are many things we don't yeah. quite get our minds around mm -hmm. but we know why we don't get our minds around it well that's yeah. a big part of suffering well uh -huh. is that there are good and sufficient reasons to believe in christianity and yes. that's why i wrote this gigantic book uh -huh. however the bible itself tells us that there are many things about god's providence we will not understand right my favorite book for that theme is Ecclesiastes. Mm. And perhaps I've read Ecclesiastes more than any other book in the Bible. Mm. And it tells us that even the wise man cannot fully fathom what's going on in the world under the sun. Mm. And life is full of vanity or what is ephemeral. Things pass mm. away that we counted on and unexpected events happen. But the author always comes back to God mm. and the enjoyments we have in life. So the way I put it is that the Christian worldview gives us a framework of meaning, gives us knowledge, justified true beliefs about God, the world, salvation, and history. That's a strong framework to have. But within that framework, there are pockets of mystery or pockets of what is difficult, if not impossible, to explain. And I draw a distinction between absurd events and events that are inexplicable. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things to me especially regarding my brilliant wife, Rebecca, why would she have a disease that takes away her ability to read, to write, to edit, that kills her? It's inexplicable to me. Now, I can see some good things that came out of it, and I thank God that he gave, gave us this way of suffering called lament, which Jesus did on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I can't say, oh, I can see why Becky had to suffer that way, because all these good things came out of it. I think that'd be presumptuous and actually impious for me to do that. Mm. I can leave that as a pocket of mystery. And my goal was to smelt or sculpt or squeeze as much meaning as possible out of the suffering. Mm. And also a non-Christian writer helped me with that quite a bit. Jewish writer, Viktor Frankl, yeah. his book, Man's Search for Meaning, because that's what he did in the concentration camps. He mm. said, we still have an inner life, no matter how bad the world is outside of us, we can respond with meaning and love, or we can give up, or we can become so angry that we hate everything. Mm. So, Isn't it interesting that the, the center of the Christian faith is really the answer to the problem of evil, yeah. right? That's exactly. why Jesus comes. Yeah. And it's been put this way, I think that um, joy is at the center of the Christian faith and suffering and mysteries at the periphery. And it's the opposite with other worldviews, right? Mm. That they have mystery at the center yeah. Yeah. and suffering and joy is only in the periphery. Mm -hmm. um, oh, sure. Gosh. I mean, think of Taoism, you know, mm -hmm. the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Okay. Close the book. <laughs> right? I just, uh, I'm almost done with the mm -hmm. manuscript for a mm -hmm. book called World Religion in Seven Sentences. Mm -hmm. And one of the sentences is from the Tao Te Ching of Taoism. The Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Mm. Or the idea of uh, Brahman without qualities in Hinduism. You can't attribute any quality to Brahman. Mm. That sounds like a non-existent. Right. A non-existence. That's a play right? to nothing. Right yeah. There. yeah. That's a play to nothing. And in Buddhism, the ultimate reality that you strive for is nirvana, which cannot be described. Mm. 
it's only described negatively. It's not mm -hmm. a person place thing. It's impersonal. Mm -hmm. It's not an individual. Mm -hmm. And here we have in scripture, God reveals himself to us. He reveals his very nature to us in historical actions and in scripture. And through the Holy Spirit, we can have access to these truths and have knowledge to rightly orient ourselves to the world. And so whenever Christians start to go mystical in a bad way about God, God is beyond language, words, mm -hmm, forms. Mm -hmm. There's so many mysteries that they hold on. Uh, as one of my colleagues likes to say, you have to earn the right to claim mystery. Mm. So if you think the two natures of Christ is a mystery, you better do a heck of a lot of hard work in historical theology and systematic theology and philosophical theology right. and get the best answer you can. Then you can say, but this is unique and there are some elements we don't understand. But in apologetics, we want to give the best explanation for the world. We don't want to just say, here's a mystery, there's a mystery, choose our mystery. <laughs> you know, why choose any mystery if it's all beyond mm. knowledge and mm -hmm. beyond reason? Mm -hmm. So uh, early on in my Christian life, people like Francis Schaeffer and Carl Henry and others uh, emphasize so much revelation, biblical revelation. We have knowledge from God. And this rightly orients us to the world, and we don't have to be afraid of other religions. We don't have to fear atheism or Islam or Buddhism or anything else. Right before I became a Christian, I was hiking a, a mountain with a friend of mine in Anchorage, Alaska, named John. And I said, John, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian. And he said, Doug, I don't want you to become a Christian because you're a thinker. And if you become a Christian, you'll just go to church, you'll hang out with Christians, you'll read Christian books. You won't be the thinker that I know right now. Well, John, I've proved you wrong in the last 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you have. But it was like a challenge for my mm -hmm. life. So after I converted, I thought, well, I studied Marx and Nietzsche, and I was interested in Hinduism and Buddhism. And so I, it took me a while to reach this point. But reading Schaefer's book, The God Who Is There, was sort of the wake-up moment for me. I need to outthink the world for Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do that. We can have better answers to the deepest questions of life. So that's what I've attempted to do in all these books through all these years. And all that presupposes, ladies and gentlemen, that this is a rational world where we can ascertain truths about the world with our minds and draw valid conclusions about it, that mm -hmm. appears to be an argument for theism as well. Why, why, sure is. why should we even be, why should there even be evidence, evidence that we can follow to a conclusion? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If there's no God and the world mm -hmm. is undesigned mm -hmm. and we're just the result of unguided evolution, uh -huh. why think we would have knowledge? Why think we could make predictions at mm -hmm. the microscopic level and mm -hmm. the macroscopic mm -hmm. level? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's a, a new book coming out on that uh, in the near future by, um, Travis, you know who I'm talking about? Uh, Carol Travis, no, Carol King Carol. Travis, I believe. Anyway, she's got a book. I just endorsed it. Uh -huh. JP Moreland's going to be endorsing it. And it's the argument for God from the intelligibility of the universe. Mm. And she really gets into Kepler, oh, Kepler's right. yeah. cosmology and Kepler's epistemology. Uh -huh. It is fantastic. And I'm so embarrassed. Oh, I is that um, uh, Melissa Kane Travis? Melissa Melissa Kane Travis, of Thanks. course. Okay. Yes, she has a book coming out. Oh, good. And it is taken from her dissertation. I read it. I gave it an endorsement. Excellent. It's like I touch on that a little bit uh -huh. in my writings, but she has just taken it out good. and developed it. Great historical research, philosophy of science, philosophy of religion. It's like we have such a wealth of reasons to believe mm -hmm. in Scripture and trust God with our lives. Mm -hmm. 
and then it just gets better. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes up and does some new historical research. Mm-hmm. It's the intelligibility of the universe argument. Yeah, John Lennox yeah. has brought that up. Mm-hmm. And of course, so did C.S. Lewis. Right. Uh, famously. In miracles. Yeah, right. it would be great to have a, a, a newer uh, mm-hmm. look at that as yeah. well. For those of you just tuning in, uh, uh, my guest is Douglas Groteis. And if you want to look him up on the internet, G-R-O-O-T-H-U-I-S. Dutch name, you say. Huh? It is, yeah. All right. Uh, let me ask you about another book that I'm listening to that you've done, Doug. I'm, I've got the big tome, and uh, the book I'm listening to is called Fire in the Streets. It's you're about, putting bread on my table if you're buying these books. Well, yeah, yeah i got to feed your hungry kids, just like I tell people. <laughs> hungry dog. Yeah. Um, this book is about critical race theory. Why did you decide mm-hmm. to take that on? I needed more enemies. <laughs> uh, that's the main reason. Uh-huh. Um, Well, we all know what happened in the summer of 2020 after the death of George Floyd. And I knew the philosophy behind it. Mm -hmm. And people kept asking me to write about it, to be on podcasts, to do Zoom shows about it. And I thought, I think I need to write a book about it. And this title came to me, Fire in the Streets. Mm. We have fire in the streets because we had fire in the minds of men and women. Mm -hmm. Revolutionary Marxist Mm -hmm. fire. So I came up with this idea and use the metaphor of fire throughout the book. And I thought, well, this is a long shot. I haven't really written a book on uh, political social issues per se, Mm -hmm. but I found a publisher right away, Salem. Mm -hmm. They were interested in it. They said they could get it out quickly. Uh, I had fire in my bones to write the book. I wrote the book in four months. It was 100,000 words. They wanted 60,000, but I had so many ideas and so much to say that I wrote 100,000 words in four months. And I sent it to them hoping they might change their mind. And they said, we need 60,000 words, just as we said. Mm -hmm. So in one day, I cut it down to 60,000 words. I was just in the zone with this book. It's remarkable, which doesn't mean it's any good. You know, I'm just telling you. (laughs) No, it is good. The way I uh, wrote it. There's a lot of history in it, too. A lot of history. helps you understand how we got here and where we should be. Well, American history. Yeah, right. Because what critical race theory wants to do, and it's based on... Marx through critical theory of people like Marcuse and other people like Derek Bell, it needs to discredit America as a system. Mm -hmm. It needs to say that our origins are really rooted in slavery, 1619 Mm -hmm. project, not in the founding ideals. The founding ideals are a crock, according to critical race theory. Wait, wait, wait. According to those people, wouldn't that be what they wanted, that all men are created equal? How could it be a crock? Well, they, they believe, well, actually, I'm not sure they even believe that. All right. But they would say if Jefferson owned slaves, for uh-huh. him to say all men are created equal means the document is just a fraud. He didn't really uh-huh. believe it. Uh-huh. And, of course, the Constitution uh, talks about the three-fifths clause for slaves in the South. I go into all this. Oh, you do? And that, yeah. was, that was just a way of the North trying to give the South... Well, you explain it. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's when you, when you understand yeah. the history behind yeah. it, it's the North trying to prevent the South from getting too much power That's to keep it. slavery in place. That's exactly it. Yeah. And people say, look, our own constitution says that African-Americans mm-hmm. are only three-fifths of a human. Uh, uh-huh. I even find conservative writers that will say that. Yeah. That's not it. No. I have four pages refuting that. That it was, was the compromise. era of Dred Scott, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So my take is that slavery, of course, is evil. It's not unique to the white race enslaving other races. Slavery has been going on ever since the fall. Uh It's taken place when one people group can take advantage over another people group, even if they are the same color. Mm -hmm. Uh, Blacks in the U.S. own slaves. Mm -hmm. 
Thomas Sowell's documented this, of course, not to the extent that whites own slaves. But my take is that the Declaration of Independence is a marvelous and inspiring document, and we should live up to it. Jefferson was not completely living up to it when he wrote it, but you can write better than you live, and you sure. can talk better than you live. Right. So uh, the Constitution, I think, is haunted, if you will, by the Declaration. And so eventually, America abolished slavery. And then that took more work with dealing with the Jim Crow mm -hmm. injustices. But we've made major systemic advances in how races are treated in the United States. But see, critical race theory wants to say it's all cosmetic. The system is still entirely racist. Everything's baked into the system. So this is why you saw all the destruction and all the hateful language in 2020. Because the idea was that a white man's knee on a black man's neck murdering him, which is how it was perceived, is actually much more complicated than that mm -hmm. in the actual story. But that's the image of America. Right. Yeah, that's okay. That's, that's the image of America. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it isn't. Right. That is mm -hmm. a sad situation. Mm -hmm. There's much more to that story than was often understood. But we've got to look at our founding documents, our founding ideals, the positive changes that have been made. And my th thesis is that we need to continue to reform our country according to its highest principles. Mm -hmm. Critical race theory says it is beyond reform. It has to be overthrown. It has to be overturned. Mm. And that's why we saw the violence in the streets. By what moral standard? By the outrage of the oppressed. So whatever the oppressed, the perceived oppressed, whether they are oppressed or not is another question. Yeah, right. Whatever they say needs to happen because mm -hmm. there's a moral standard out there that says anyone who's oppressed uh, must be heard and those who are, are the so-called oppressors can't be heard mm -hmm. or if they try and be heard through reason, it's just an expression of their oppression and power. Exactly, right. Which means that rational discourse and the marketplace of ideas are impossible. So how do you reason with people who are not open to reason, Doug? This is a loaded question, I guess. They're not interested in reason. They think if you're using reason, you're somehow trying to oppress them further. What do we do? Pray and hope for some kind of an end, you know, mm -hmm. some kind of a illustration or an example or something to show them that they have to use reason. Mm -hmm. Even when you deny reason, you have to use mm -hmm. reason mm -hmm. to deny it. And when you deny objective truth, uh, you're presupposing it. I heard on National Public Radio a few years ago this statement, the idea of objective truth is racist. <laughs> Is that objective yeah, right. true? <laughs> How many nanoseconds did it take these yeah. two old apologists yeah, to, right. get, to get that problem? <laughs> it, it just stated, and the person who was interviewing this person said, oh, yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, that must be true. Huh? So yeah. we need facts and logic and evidence to support what we believe. And let's, let's bring it on. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell people with my book, Fire in the Streets, if you don't like some of the conclusions, then refute me. Mm -hmm. So JP Moreland endorsed the book and he said just that. He said, if Doug's taken a stance on something that's a little controversial, but if you think he's wrong, then give a better argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I am not for reparations. I, I don't think America right now is systemically racist mm -hmm. to the, uh, in the sense that we need to radically change everything and use a, 
uh, Abraham X. Kendi kind of method for dealing well, with racial how, how problems. How would they define systematic racism? Is it in our laws? I mean, are there certain laws out there that say blacks are treated differently than Asians or whites? Well, actually, there are. Well, there are, but there it are. goes the other way. Yeah, yeah. It's it's in yeah. at Harvard now. That's before the Supreme Court right now. Mm-hmm. Harvard has a higher standard for blacks, whites, and anyone else for Asians because they think they have too many Asians. So now they're discriminating against Asians. So that would be systematic racism, right. but right. it's it's going against Asians, actually. Yeah. So other well, than that, uh, but that's yeah. not a law. That's a... It's an admission it, policy. Admission policy that yeah. is probably, well, it I hopefully will be overturned. I hope so, yeah, because yeah. it's not uh, meritocratic. Mm-hmm. It's not all men are created equal and should be treated mm-hmm. equally. I am all for equal opportunity mm-hmm. and having a great concern for people who have been marginalized or oppressed in society. Scripture tells us to do that. But critical race theory wants to do it through socialism. Mm -hmm. And it believes that if there are any discrepant outcomes of achievement in society among racial groups, Mm -hmm. racism is the problem. Racism is the explanation every time. And that's bad social science. Totally bad social science. I dedicated my book to somebody I've never met, Thomas Sowell, Mm -hmm. the great economist and historian, African-American. I've been reading him for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So when all this talk of systemic racism and the need for reparations and all this came about, I thought, I I know what to say about this. I haven't written much about it, but having read Thomas Sowell all these years and having literally a a shelf this big Mm -hmm. of his books, Mm -hmm. I need to say something about this. And Christians need not only to have passion for truth and a knowledge of scripture, we also know, we need to know something about history and the facts on the ground. Mm. So, yes, we want to help people who are poor, people who have been discriminated against, but a lot of Christians jump on the leftist critical race theory bandwagon because they think this is the only way to address it. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Explain the difference between equal opportunity and this new term equity that everyone's yeah. using. Well, equal opportunity would be, let's say, for admissions policies, you have the same standard mm-hmm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. In hiring for jobs, you hire according to competence and background. Equity says that you need to have outcomes that are proportionate to the population percentage. So if we have 13% African-Americans overall in society, if we don't have 13% African-Americans, dentists or judges or admitted to schools, then the reason for that is racism. So is that the same in in the sports world? Of course not. Okay. It's totally meritorious in the sports world, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise whites and other, uh, other ethnicities are being discriminated against in the NBA and the NFL. And maybe blacks are being discriminated against in the, in baseball Mm -hmm. because there's more whites and Hispanics. So this is sophistry really. If they say that every outcome is Mm -hmm. due to racism, people make choices. People do different things. Well, there's self-selection. Yeah. There are all kinds of reasons for differential mm-hmm. achievements. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one that Thomas Sowell points out is that around the world, throughout history, people that live in mountainous regions mm-hmm. tend to have more difficulty achieving things because they're isolated, they mm-hmm. have a difficult life, they've got to deal with all the dangers and troubles mm-hmm. of living in the mountains. Appalachia's example, mm-hmm. this in Appalachia is mostly whites. Right. So when you say that whites as a group, white males as a group are oppressing everybody else, I'd say, let's look at a third generation welfare, white Appalachian man living in a trailer court who's addicted to opioids. You're telling me that he is oppressing 
Angela Davis, mm. who is, if she's not retired now, is a tenured professor. Angela Davis was a radical in the 60s, African-American student of Marcuse's, mm -hmm. uh, very well-established in the left, wealthy, books everywhere. You tell me somehow this man is part of a system that is oppressing her. Mm. These categories don't work. Right. They, they worked a long time ago mm -hmm. when there was white privilege and the idea of white mm -hmm. supremacy. Mm -hmm. And there are these horrible people out there mm -hmm. who really are white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And there's parts of the alt-left that are racialist and wrong. And I have nothing to do with it. Yeah, Antifa. Well, and you've right. got Antifa yeah. on the other side. Right. So I, I say, let's try to reform America according to its highest ideals mm -hmm. as Christian citizens. And let's do some homework before we jump on bandwagons. Mm -hmm. And we won't even have equity in heaven, will we? Jesus is going to take from some, from some and give to others of the parable of the talents, right? The talents, sure, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So all these people who are saying we should have equity here on earth, we're not even gonna have equity in heaven, right? People are gonna have different rewards and, and I mean, we're all gonna be there if we're, if we're saved, but we're mm -hmm. gonna be, we're gonna have different rewards based on the works that right. we've done in heaven. So equity right. isn't something that God is even interested in. No, it's, it's way too simplistic, it's mm -hmm. reductionistic, it's bad social science, mm -hmm. it's bad history, but it's extremely popular. Mm. And it's just assumed in a lot of hiring practices, it's assumed in some of our laws, and I take it to be unfair, un-American, and it's not even empowering to people. No, I was going to say, Doug, how does it yeah. hurt people yeah. to give them such an advantage? Because I've heard Thomas Sowell said when he was teaching, I don't know, University of Chicago or Cornell, he was at Cornell and he said um, some African-Americans were admitted into Cornell uh, because of affirmative action and they couldn't cut it there. They mm -hmm. would have been superstars at a school just a notch down. Right. And it actually set them yeah. back. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how does that help anyone? Right, it uh, Dinesh D'Souza was writing about this in the early 90s, his mm. book, Illiberal Education. Mm -hmm. So you have affirmative action to up the percentage of minorities. And if they haven't performed well in high school, they likely will not perform that well mm -hmm. in college. Mm -hmm. And the dropout rates are higher. And people can change majors to easier majors. So it's so artificial. Mm. And you need to go where you can thrive mm -hmm. according to your abilities and your achievements need to go where you thrive and you say, well, you've been discriminated against. You have to be because you're not achieving as much as other people. So we will just bump you up the ladder mm -hmm. and put you in a position where you may be set up to fail. Right. And moreover, people like Shelby Steele, who I love and quote a lot, and, and uh, Thomas Sowell and others have said it also creates suspicion. Mm. with affirmative action. I, well, is that person of color there because they're the best? That's right. Yeah. Or are they there because we had a quota to fulfill? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not good for anybody. That creates animosity yeah, too, it for does. the people that, that didn't quite make it and maybe yes, should have. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've applied for a lot of positions over the years and you, there's the optional, but you know, very significant uh, affirmative action uh -huh. boxes. And one of them you can check is native Alaskan. Now, I was born in Anchorage, in Anchorage, Alaska in 1957, so I am a native Alaskan. However, I'm not an Eskimo or Aleut or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I've been tempted. I think one time I did check it just uh -huh. for fun to see what would happen. But I say, why don't we just not worry about that? Let's try to bring people up to the level where they can compete right. well and let them achieve according to their abilities. Mm -hmm. That's much more in the DNA of America than mm -hmm. affirmative action, 
reparations, enforced equity. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't buy it. It's the the student that applied. Uh, uh, he claimed to be an African American, and when he came and showed up on campus. He was an African-American just from South Africa, a white guy. That's right. <laughs> right? Elon and Musk. They were, yeah, they, they were furious, right? That's right. It's right. Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. So even these mm -hmm. these terms we use, African-American, don't apply right. to everyone either in, in, in such a way. Well, Doug, it's been a pleasure having you on. And uh, tell people where they can learn more about you, maybe see more of your work. Where do they go? Well, I have a web page. It has the exciting name of DouglasGrotheis.com. Uh-huh. And we are revamping it and making it jazzier and more interactive and so on. And then I'll have a podcast that will drop November 21st called Truth Tribe with Doug Grotheis. That will be done through Salem Media. Okay, good. We have the first six in the can. All right. And that will publish weekly starting on November 21st. What are you going to be covering there most? Of, what's, what's well, the I start theme? out with an apologetics foundation. All right. And we also have a program on my new book. Fire in the Streets. So the first episode, I tell a little bit about my story and who I am as a philosopher and an apologist. Mm -hmm. The second one is on what is the Christian worldview. The third one is on apologetics in a nutshell. And I think the fourth one will be Fire in the Streets. And then I look at basic Christian ethics and then a Christian theology of society. So I'm trying to build a foundation upon which we can comment upon social issues mm -hmm. and various things in apologetics. I'm also a big jazz fan, so I hope to do some shows about jazz, how jazz relates to apologetics, jazz and race, jazz and American culture, things like that. Excellent. All right. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Grotheis is spelled G-R-O-T-H-U-I-S. You Look left out one online. of the O's. Did I? <laughs> G-R-O-O, two O's, T-H-U-I-S. And uh, he is a blessing. 16 books, plenty of articles as well. Now a new podcast. You want to check them out. And thanks for being here on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist bonus podcast. God bless you.